Hello, my fanist friends. Welcome to my podcast feed. Powered by ACAS Plus, here's a joke from my son. What did the bum say to the other bum? That's a bummer. You know, not for everyone. Uh, so, uh, look, thanks to everyone who's come to see the previews of Can I Have My Ball Back. It's been going really, really well, and uh, I'm really pleased with how the show's turning out. It's officially on tour now from Wednesday. I'll be at the Leicester Square Theatre. A couple of tickets left. Lots of press coming to that one. It'd be lovely to sell out, but there are a few other London gigs not selling as well. So if you're going to come to London... Maybe look up those other London gigs. And then this week I'll be in St Albans on Thursday, Gloucester on Friday, Chorley on Saturday, which is sold out. You can join the waiting list. And Glasgow on Sunday, two shows. I think the earlier show is sold out. Check with the venue, but the later show has some availability. Come along if you can. If you enjoy these podcasts and like them being free, then the great way to pay me back is to buy a ticket to a show or buy a download or a book from gofasterstripe.com. But you can just keep listening for free as well. That pays me back also. So, you know, no no pressure. But I'd love to see you there. If you just know me from the podcast and don't know me as a stand-up, I'm pretty good as a stand-up. It's a good show. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's only made about seven men faint so far. So, you know, are you brave enough to take the challenge? Let's sit back, relax and enjoy whichever podcast you're listening to now. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to the greatest Rahalastapa of my life and the greatest moment of my life. Um, Rahalastapa with Sir Michael Palin. I'm amazed I didn't cry all the way through this. I held it together pretty well. Um, there's things I do differently, but Michael was incredible. I would just say that if you're not a monthly badger, the backstage video of Michael answering emergency questions is extremely good. He improvises a whole new scene to Life of Brian. If you haven't taken the plunge and become a monthly badger to see that and hundreds of other backstage videos, plus other extras, uh, all my stand-up shows, uh membership badge, all sorts of things, a pack, secret codes, uh, a monthly draw. You're contributing to making more podcasts. It's only £3 a month. You can pay more if you want. Go to gofasterstripe.com slash badges. It is worth a year's membership of that in order to see the Michael Palin interview. Um, i so chuffed that Michael did this, as you can see from my reactions throughout uh, and I'm so glad that we managed to get this in. 
a week before the lockdown kicked in. Um, so I think uh, this year was there was lots of good things coming up for me in this year and different things have happened and they're still quite good. I'm doing twitchtv.com, sorry, twitch.tv slash RK Herring and you can see me doing more interviews and other weird, weird and wonderful stuff. Uh, but I think if I had missed out on interviewing Michael Palin, um, then I would not be as uh, happy as I, as I am with 2020. I'm not saying it's, it would have been worse than the coronavirus, but for me, it might have been. Uh, so um, I hope you'll enjoy this podcast. It's lots of fun. It's such an uh, incredible honour to uh, have this man on stage. And um, yeah, come on, let's not waste people's time by talking talking any more about it. Go com slash badges if you want to become a monthly badger. See that extra scene of Life of Brian. Uh, Twitch.tv slash RK Herring. If you want to continue watching live Rahalistapas, we're doing them every Wednesday night. We're starting to put them out on the podcast feed as well, so you don't have to watch them on Twitch. But uh, they will pop up, and uh, in a couple of weeks' time, we'll see the first one of those with Adam Buxton. So let's sit back, relax, and enjoy Rahalistapa with Sir Michael Palin. I can die happy now, Richard Herring. Goodbye. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who has just retired from his most lucrative job he's ever done. It's Richard Herring! Thank you very much. Oh, hello, London. Oh, it's good to be back. Series 19. It's Series 19. They recommissioned me for another series. A few days have passed for you people at home, but it's been months for us, hasn't it? It's been months since I last did one of these. Uh, uh, welcome uh, to Richard Herring's Lobbing Sixpences and Tuppences podcast. Uh, it's, if you listen to the Sarah Pascoe podcast, there was uh, a room that I've decided just to embrace because people are... That I like to throw coins in the face of my lovers. Uh, so we're just... Gonna be a podcast about that. I don't know if our guest was ready for that. Uh, but uh, I was hanging around on uh, Twitch yesterday. Uh, Three hundred twenty thousand people came on. They were just annoyed that I wasn't playing the game and talking about it. Uh, they call it Rehalestabus. So I don't know if that's gonna catch on yet. Yeah, yesterday was uh, my last ever Wednes International Men's Day day. Uh, it's all over. It's all over. Thank God it's over. Uh, so. Uh, uh, yeah, it's kind of weird. I've sent out the last time that I'm ever going to do it. We, I think we, we've got some plans to do something else. I'm going to try and make men celebrate International Men's Day. That, that's going to be harder, isn't it, than doing what we did. But, uh, yeah. We, pardon? When, I don't know. I don't do it. I don't do that anymore. The, the minute I stopped, the information just left my head. So, uh, But anyway, thank you very much if you watched that. We might start doing some stuff on Twitch with uh, the podcasts as well, the various podcasts. Uh, so you might be able to watch these live at home. We'll see soon. We will see. Uh, and I'm wearing a suit tonight like I always do. And these, so that's nothing. <laughs> trying to impress anyone here. Uh, uh, I'm going to not dick around too much at the start. Uh, so that will make the people at home happy. Uh, I feel like a child who has won a competition. Uh, and if my family has organised this because I'm secretly dying and I don't know about it. <laughs> I, I'm pretty cool with that. It's been worth it. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Uh, 
So, let's, without further ado, uh, will you please welcome my guest tonight? He's probably best known <laughs> as Gary in Robbie the Reindeer, Close Encounters of the Herd Kind. We're getting the, we're getting the whole cast back together, don't worry about that one. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome Sir Michael Palin! <laughs> We've already shaken hands. He's already got it. <laughs> We've already got it. I mean, I really hope I don't give you the coronavirus, Michael. That would be... That would be... I don't know how long coronavirus jokes are going to work, no. really. Well, it's fun now. This is going to go out in, in sort of about yes. early May, where there will be many people will have died by then. So it's like it's going to seem this very the... insensitive. This is like the crossrail of comedy, isn't it? It's going to go out in about three years' time. No yeah. four. <laughs> anyway. How are you? It's, it's so lovely to have you here. Thank you very much um, indeed. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. It's an intoxicating atmosphere. <laughs> I could tell as soon as you went on, there were a lot of intoxicated people here. <laughs> but how nice and very friendly it feels. There were, they are, but they are, are friendly. They? Don't get too close to them, even on a non-coronavirus day. Uh, no, so lovely. Uh, there's one question I want to ask you right at the start. I want to get this out of the way. Um, it's not that. It's Mike, Sir Michael Palin. Sir no, Michael no. Palin. No, I, I, Sir I'm Michael not. Palin. No, no. It's no. not the what the they're, no, they're, they're awful people. Um, <laughs> will you be my dad? <laughs> well, you know, let's have a go. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be tricky. A little bit of rewriting history, but you yeah. know, I wouldn't be. Put it this way. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be embarrassed by having you as a child. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> I, I wouldn't call you Richard, though. I think I'd call you something else. What would you have called me? Dick? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My dad's... So it's almost Richard, but, yeah. you know, it just kind of has a... Well, and, you know, it's got a nice little ring to it yeah. somehow. <laughs> Dick Herring, doesn't it? I think it's great. Uh, my dad's still alive, but I'd still prefer to oh, have dear. you as the as my. Oh. And I can throw in my mum, who uh, she's eighty-three, and she looks a bit like Bobby Robson, the ex-football master. Yeah. But she's honestly, she looks like she's fifty-five. I'd say. Do, do you tell her this? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you remind me of Bobby Robson. I think you'd, I should have brought a picture because then you could, that could have swung the deal. If you'd seen yeah. That. My my mum looked more like Chris Wilder. Right. Well, she did. She's dead now. Okay. You know who Chris Wilder is? You I don't, don't know. know. He is no. a manager of Sheffield United. Was he? Yeah. My football team. Are they your team? Someone well. asked me to ask if you're Wednesday or United, so that's yeah. been dividing Sheffield. That yeah, question. that's it. So United. Yeah. Um, oh, you're going to ask me? Sorry. Yes. No, I made the terrible mistake of of because I'm from Sheffield. Yeah. And you're from Yorkshire as well. You come to London. I was in London forty years ago or something. Fifty years ago. And I love Sheffield, and so any time a Sheffield team beat a London team, I didn't mind. But you go back to Sheffield, you cannot support both of them. No. You are a visceral traitor if you <laughs> try to support one or the other. Yeah. They hate it, because they hate each other more than they hate anybody else. Yeah. And at the moment, there's a great deal of hate around, because Sheffield Wednesday are sort of falling apart. Beaten 5-0 by Brentford, yes, which is were. just on the way to the airport. That's all that is, <laughs> you know. What, is, what else happens at Brentford? Yeah. I used to work in Brentford. I worked in a, a company that manufactured parts for lighthouses in Brentford. 
<laughs> that was one of my best <laughs> Which uh, which 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 parts? It was uh, <laughs> I think, the top bit or the I little think bit? Like the lights, I'm guessing. I, I had to I was dealing with invoices, I didn't ever see any of the actual merchandise. Well it's funny you should say that yeah. because my my mother's grandfather invented, I think, the revolving light in lighthouses. Wow. Yeah. Was it just static before then? I mean, it's... No, no, I mean, it's, it's just sort a of bloke who ran round with a it's... thing. You know. But then they got a machine that's It's helped. sort of fine it being static, isn't it? Because then people can see it's there. If it's moving, there's a point when people can't see it. It's like yeah. Russian roulette for boats. Yeah, it's also, yeah. <laughs> and it means if you're on the shore, you yeah. don't want a bloody light shining at you. That's all true. Time, in the middle of the night, do you? That's true. I'm not a ship! Out that way! <laughs> Good. Uh, I, this is this is quite a big deal for me, Michael. you I think you're um, my problem. Me too. Me too. Yeah, no. it's a bigger deal than you might. I'm, think. I'm doing quite well. Uh, I'm kind of in awe. You're, I think you're my ultimate comedy hero out of everyone. <laughs> I've, uh, I've, I've the last ever. comedy hero. Um, who would that be for for you? Would you would would have been there someone for you who I know you like the goons. Well, yes, uh, it probably would be Spike. Yeah. But you did interview Spike, so I saw you interviewing Spike on uh, the Comic Roots you did, which, yes. I, which I re-watched. I mean, Spike was just so utterly and completely legendary, because when I was at school, um, the Goon Show represented something that was... I mean, there was nowhere else in, in the entire sort of panoply of the media um, that, that sort of was silly and absurd. Yeah. And the fact that it was on the BBC Home Service, which is full of people in you know, black tie reading the news and all that, and suddenly it was another goon show, and for, for half an hour it was just very, very silly, inspired stuff. Grown-ups yeah. being extremely silly. I thought, this is what I want to be when I grow up. Well, I don't want to grow up, really. I basically <laughs> want to be like that. So Spike, and, and I grew up in Sheffield, and, and no idea or any sort of likelihood of ever going into showbiz of any kind. Yeah. But we became very interested in the writers of shows. Writing was something I always thought that's the key thing. Yeah. And Spike wrote most of the Goon shows, not all of them by any means. Yeah. Um, so that made him quite a hero. And, and the more I learned about Spike, and the fact I got to know him was just absolutely wonderful because he's a difficult man, Spike. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, the fact that, that we, we, became, we became friends despite everything. In fact, at one... Um, there was one show, it, it, was a, it was an award show, and Spike was being given an, a, a major award. I think it was some sort of lifetime award and all that. And we all got there, and um, Spike's um, agent, Norma Farns, classic, she was an agent for all these people, um, she said, Spike's in a bit of a mood today. <laughs> Can he sit next to you? Because he'd be all right. Can you keep him quiet? Oh, I'll try. <laughs> and um, on came... It was one of those shows where you had a comedian came on first and did sort of ten minutes. Yeah. He didn't need the comedian to do ten minutes, but they'd been told this was the thing to do. So this comedian comes on. I can't remember who it was, but, but you know, halfway through, Spike says very loudly, Who the fuck's this? Which must be the worst thing you can... <laughs> You can hear when you're up on stage. Um, and, uh, and yet there was a nice twist because they, they, when Spike's award came up, he went up onto the stage and we all, everyone just stood up. It was just amazing. You know, yeah. sort of, 
homage to the man. And um, he collected the award and he came and um, he just walked back and, and sat back in his seat and Norma leaned to him and said, Spike, why didn't you say anything? And, and it was of tears in his eyes. He said, I, I couldn't think of anything to say. You know, which is just lovely, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, but he was like that. He was a sort of, well, he was a bit manic depressive anyway. Sure. But the fact that at the most manic, Spike was the, one of the most inspired, imaginative, inventive writers I've ever known. Yeah. You ended up in Comic Roots. You're interviewing him in the living room that you used to listen to the Goon Show in, though. That must have been. Yeah, I mean, the the the, the conceit of that was that there was a show about where my comic, where I began my comic, where I began my comic life. Such a silly <laughs> thing. You know, I'm a comic life. Oh, that baby's <laughs> laughing already. Um, <laughs> he's going to be a comic, Mrs. Palin. Uh, sorry, Mrs. Robson. Um, but. Uh, um, so we reconstructed this this room to look like the living room, and we had the same radio right. on which I used to listen to the goons. I kept it for some reason. Right. It was a wonderful one, those old valve radios. And we sat there and and played a bit of the goons and panned round. There was Spike actually sitting there with yeah. me. And um, there was another nice mo- moment when he was... Again, he could be very touching. And I said, Spike, what was it like, you know... The goons inspired so much, meant so much to people like myself, a whole generation of schoolboys. And he said, oh, you know, it was like one good summer. And I thought it was, again, very poetic, you know, because for him it was hell writing it, really. Yeah. But they were brilliant and it meant a lot to people. But one good summer, I thought, was just a nice sort of little moment, a sort of golden moment in life, which had otherwise been shit. (laughs) Well, he had a time, I mean, we won't talk about Spike too much, but he did. I felt like he wasn't, certainly the end of his life, he wasn't appreciated in the way that he possibly should have been and the BBC didn't treat him all that nicely. No, he was running on different rails to everybody yeah. else, really. Spike yeah. was interested in everything. He was interested in trees, he was interested in wildlife, he was interested in history. I mean, just, just no one could really keep up with him. Yeah. And I think that was, that was kind of difficult, but that was also part of his skill and inspiration. Sure. I mean, I think it's interesting because the, obviously Monty Python is a similar thing in to, in, in, uh, to the goons in that it's that inspiration, but it's also that coming yeah. together of the right people at the at the right time. Yeah, but Spike felt that Python, in his you know his more sort of um, depressive moments, felt that Python totally ripped him off, um, and you know he's absolutely right, um, <laughs> um, because in 1969 there was a, a show called Q5. Yeah. which um, it was one of a series of Spike programmes. It went on out on BBC Two. Nobody really saw much of it. But wonderful, they did, they did wonderful things. Like they would do one whole show, uh, all the actors who appeared, there was a little caption would come up um, underneath as they performed. So John Bluthall, um, take-home pay, £48, <laughs> 10 shillings. Can you imagine that in Downton Abbey or something? Wouldn't it be wonderful? You know, that's sort of... Jim Carter, take home pay four thousand um, pounds, and um, and another one he did. One of the um, terrible fears in the BBC costume department was that somebody would go on because it had happened once before with the name of their costume still um, uh, still sort of pinned to their to their garment. Yeah. And this was, you know, heads rolled and people were sacked and all that. So Spike did an entire show where everyone came on with enormous labels <laughs> saying who they were. And he just, he was naughty. Yeah, he was. Um, 
I, I, I was thinking about, I mean, at Python's of where um, I, I sort of d- discovered you myself. And I was, a, I was a, you know, I was the more of the films than the TV show because the TV show had sort of been on yeah. by the time I was able to. You're young. I mean, that. you're young. I'm a little. Well, I'm you're not young, young you're, anymore. You're but, a babe. Uh, you're a babe. But yeah, I miss. They went, and they never repeated things in those mm. days. So occasionally it would come on the TV. Yeah, and my true. brother was very excited about it. He's five or six years older than me. Um, but it was it was Life of Brian especially, which I wasn't. I'd got all the tapes and all the records, uh, and I wasn't allowed to go to see Life of Brian. But we went anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, and I don't know how we got away. I mean, I, I assume mm. my parents must have just. Sort of, we, we we all went to Wells where there was a cinema, and well, me and my friends and. Someone came and picked us up, and we must have pretended to do something else. <laughs> but I don't know how we got, yeah. we got we got away with it somehow. We got yeah, in. Right. I think we were allowed in. I mean, that's the way to enjoy comedy, you know. But yeah, as an illicit. But it was. But, uh, but that was. I mean, the whole of Python drug. was sort of, was having a sort of slight crack at uh, the structure of society. But obviously, that was the big one in terms of daring to mock religion. But I was thinking about it the, last night, and I just I think it's where all of you were almost at the heights of your powers. I think it was the the one. Yeah. thing in Python where just everyone was... Graham was brilliant in it and was yeah. sober in it and, and, and really mm. did fantastically well. The songs, obviously, like... The, or the song, the end song, yeah. is one of the most famous songs. And, and you're, you're... I was thinking, because I was trying to think what's my favourite character you've done. And I really love the uh, nicest, wettest is the crucifixion. Oh, yes. Just, it's very underplayed. One cross each yeah. on the left. Sorry. <laughs> is, and what I... The best thing in that is when... It, Eric comes along and uh, crucifixion. No, no, I've been told that I can go free in Lafontaine's Island. Yeah. And the centurion, who is a nice young man, he's from Rome, very liberal parents. <laughs> yeah. He's been sent to this god awful part of the world where it's hot and the people are all sort of revolutionaries. And so it's just wonderful. He says, Oh, that's marvellous. That's great. <laughs> and then the, the great line is Eric's, No, no, it's, it's crucifixion, really. <laughs> oh, 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 yes. Uh... So he's been made out smart. <laughs> he's been made to look a fool for thinking someone could but be there free. But there must have been people like that. You know, it's, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. It obviously is a sort of anachronism, but it also there must have been people like that. Well, it's such an understated, beautiful performance. But I think mm. then. You, I know the film so well, honestly. I, as a child, I, as a young man, I watched it so many times, and I know it all off by heart. But it's almost like you think... I'll, I'll start doing for you, if you like. Yeah. Uh, we'll get on to that. I'm going to do a few sketches for you later. Know about this. Um, but uh, you kind of think... But that's the, you're that character. You're the same guy who's Pontius Pilate, and you're the same guy who's the ex-leper. And you, obviously, I know it's you each time, but the, the characterisation... I mean, I think you're the best actor in Python, but the characterization of each mm. of each one is so distinct and good. It's actually hard to believe that it's the same person playing the the, the lucky, lucky bastard guy in the. Well, yeah, yeah. The... I just, I, I really, really enjoy playing characters. Yeah. You know, not to me, inhabiting, oh, inhabiting. God, that's a word I never thought I'd say. <laughs> Terrible, trendy word. I was inhabiting a character, but you know, rather than just being the words and, and the jokes and yeah. all that, it was actually the person who was saying it and what, what, what were they were about. So, you know, Ben, who's been, been <laughs> stuck on the wall yeah. by the Romans and treated incredibly <laughs> badly, he says, ah, Romans, they're bloody good lot. You know? <laughs> they did this, that, they're absolutely right. I, would de- I deserved it, you know, and all that. And there are sort of people like that. Yeah. And that was the key, to, the key to writing Life of Brian was not sort of... Let's sit down and see how we can mock religion or shock people. Um, let's see how we can take that story and, and do the trick of transposing people. We all know, um, you know, in our, our world today, 
back to that world then? Because I'm sure people weren't all that different. Yeah. So you've got the cheeky Cockney. I mean, he wouldn't be Cockney. He'd be cheeky Aramaic or something like that. Yeah. But it's still the same sort of character. Yeah. You know, um, no, no, I'm, uh, no, it's uh, it's crucifixion, really, don't worry. Um, and all, and all those ca- all those characters were sort of based on on somebody who who wasn't sort of you you know you you explored what they were like and you you yeah. you worked that usually for only about three minutes. You didn't yeah. get long to develop characters in Python, but it was a sheer joy to do it and to do so many characters in the film. Was, Did was it feel wonderful. at the time that you were making something? That special. I mean, I do because I just feel everyone's at the top of the game. The writing's brilliant. I think all the performances are brilliant. Well, um, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it was certainly the best thing that we did because it was the most consistent and it was about something and it was um, it was comfortable. You know, we were we had a bit of money thanks to George Harrison who'd given us five million quid to yeah. make the film. Five million dollars, actually, mean bastard. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, and whereas the Holy Grail, which I think had a lot of very funny stuff in it, was desperately underfunded and pretty grim to do and was <laughs> shot in Scotland and it was very cold and very dirty, I had to play one character in, um, <laughs> in the Holy Grail called the Mud Eater. And because um, people were so poor, they ate the mud. And it was a scene where the, the, the villagers are all there and in comes um, Graham... And John coming in rather grandly. I thought maybe it was Graham and Eric. Anyway, uh, the king coming through the village. So as he came in, um, the mud eater was supposed to crawl across uh, the foreground of frame and go to one side and start eating mud. Start eating mud. And so I, yeah, I remember asking, is, um, I mean, what? I'm sort of, what am I eating? <laughs> and the props guy said, don't worry, Mike, don't worry, Mike, it's chocolate, it's chocolate. There's lots of bits of chocolate grated up, uh, but all around it there'll be mud. <laughs> so have you ever tried to just differentiate between chocolate and mud? So, so most of it was mud. And, and, and for some reason we did take after take and it didn't, it didn't work. I did about ten takes. And a lot of this stuff was, was probably full of tetanus and all that, God knows what. Anyway, I did it. And... It was, it was the others who were messing it up, not me. I was brilliant. Um, <laughs> for some reason, Graham, and they were getting the walk through. And, and we did the 10th take, and it seemed just brilliant. And I ate it, and I was terrific, and I crawled, and I looked miserable. <laughs> and I, I really putting all myself into a self-abasement. Um, and there's a pause, and I said, wow, that's great. And I heard one of the directors, I can't remember which Terry... But it was the one I hate most, probably, <laughs> probably Terry Gilliam. No, no. Uh, just say, no, sorry, we've got to do it again. Oh, and I said, why? He said, um, someone said, we could see Michael. <laughs> I realised I'd been doing all this. No one was even seeing me. It was just an idea that had come up in the read-through. Oh, yeah, Michael, you do that. And I was working with the props guys. I was getting it all right. I was sore, I was cut, I was calloused, I was bleeding, and there wasn't even bloody being filmed. I mean, sorry, we could see Michael. Isn't that what demeaning? Sorry, I didn't mean to go off like that. I have a good relationship with that. Shit. No, I love it. It is funny, um, like, being a fan of the the Piper stuff and realising that 35 years on, I can still remember, like, 
massive chunks of the stuff that I learned off the records, really. Mm. Do you still... Do, you, do people come up to you a lot? Yeah. Expect you yep. to... <laughs> yeah. Expect Usually you. in this theatre. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing now. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I can start I, doing it. People I do. wish to register. <laughs> yes. Miss. Yeah. People do, and I, I can never remember. No. I can never remember the lines. None of us can. No. We're always a bit outwitted when people come up and they say something and, and say, well, oh, that's quite funny. Where did you get that? <laughs> it's in your film. It's in your film. You're the servant, third servant. So, oh, yeah, oh, that's right, yeah. But, um, it's, but it's, so in, the, in Holy Grail, the constitutional peasant sketch. Uh, yeah. the, the, but the pleasure of that is the the writing of it is so intense, and presumably the learning of it is it initially is quite difficult. Yeah. If you're not just listening to it on a record a thousand Moist times. Moisten bints with swords. Yeah. Moisten bints. But I know, uh, I, yeah. I know it. It's, uh, supreme yeah. executive power derives from a mandate of the masses, not some farcical aquatic ceremony. If I <laughs> claim to be emperor because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me. I'd be like taken away. So, yeah. But that's yeah. that. I fucking know yeah. it. Thirty. I haven't looked at that thing for yeah. thirty-five years. Uh, there you go. No. <laughs> no, it's, no, yeah, but it's it all starts just with the resentment of the, yeah. of the peasants, but and it's, it's not a sort of. It's again, it's not political. The first thing is, he just says, "Hey, old man. Oh, I'm a thirty-seven. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not old. So immediately you've set up. Yeah. He's not going to get on with it." And what was so brilliant, I think, in both those films is Graham Chapman's performance. Yeah. I think he was absolutely extraordinary. Because, you know, all right, he was sober in, yeah. in uh, Life of Brad. He wasn't so sober in Holy Grail. <laughs> but he did manage to play this poor character, a bit like Brian, who's terribly put upon. You know, I'm just going, I'm trying to go on with my life, and I'm, I'm a king, I do this. A king who gave you... A mandate. That, oh, God, I want to, I'm just, just saying hello, you know. Where's the castle sort of thing? And he gets into these conversations. So it's just the wonderful thing about power doesn't really get you anywhere yeah. <laughs> compared to the stroppy people you're trying to lord it over. And do you think, I mean, I've, I've, when, I have a sort of theory about Python that, you know, that I think I know John and Terry Jones uh, often wound each other up a little bit. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, that was... Yeah, yeah, that is fair to but say. Do you think that? I mean, I sort of feel when Terry died, I sort of feel Terry's the, was the sort of heart of Python, and that he was the yes, the sort of yeah. grit in the oyster that you needed in 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 order yeah. to facilitate all of that. Do you think that's a... well? Yeah, I mean, Terry was very easily wound up, particularly by John. John realised this early on, and scented a little bit of blood in the water. So um, you know, if 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 Terry got passionate, John would say something rude about the Welsh. Um, and, and he was very good at being rude about the Welsh. Um, not an admirable trait at all, no. but that was it. So Terry would just, uh, you know, because Terry passionate, Terry loved things and loved the way to do things. And when someone didn't understand what he was trying to say and said, well, he got terribly frustrated, but only for a minute. Then we'd sure. all laugh afterwards. And it was part of the dynamic of the whole uh, of the whole writing process, all of us came from slightly different angles yeah. and wrote different characters or wrote different ways. And that was really, really important. If it had all been sort of a, an homogenous mass, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. And you, you sort of, I mean, you chose to work together, but it was sort of almost, almost thrown together. It was just like a group, you know, John want, wanted to work with you, is that right? And then you bringing in Terry and... Um, yeah, I mean, John... Like what Terry and I had written, and, and and Eric too, and we liked what he and Graham had done. It was it was very much a sort of um, experiment, 
John just didn't... John felt there was something to be done in comedy that was different. Yeah. But actually, who made it different was actually was Terry, the two Terrys, actually. Yeah. Um, John was a terrific sketch writer. He and Graham wrote these wonderful sketches, I mean, the pet shop, cheese shop, all that sort of stuff. Um, but... Um, it was the it was Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam who 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 kind of had a concept, and and Terry's idea, Terry Jones's idea, was it should be stream of consciousness. Sketches could, you know, end wherever they wanted. Um, we wouldn't have to do the traditional sort of gag uh, uh, tagline at the end because we had Terry Gilliam, mm. who was so brilliant, yeah. fresh, and original, and he would just go to animation. He would do these wonderful little animated links. So there was a kind of story that one was writing in those half hours, but under, no one had written it quite like that before. Mm. So I think the two Terriers were the ones who made Python really distinctive. But, of course, John is... And everyone, John was just absolutely brilliant as a performer because John looks like the authority figure. He looks like the bank manager. He looks like, you know, the, the, the politician. He looks like the Freemason or whatever yeah. and undermines them absolutely brilliantly. <laughs> so that's what's so... So fantastic. Have you seen the, uh, the film Sliding Doors? <laughs> Not all of it, no. 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 You know no. there's a bit... There's a bit I know, I know. Did they a, pay you, a, did they pay you for using a massive bit of your script? No, of course they didn't. I'm Richard, not going to pay you for doing you, that. Have I've you been... got a legal background? <laughs> you, you're you're your interested script. about these things, aren't I, you? But I'm so, I mean, there's a lot of things that make me angry about sliding doors, and this isn't the main one. Oh, really? But it's, but it's, <laughs> it's one of yeah. the main ones. Yeah, okay. In that uh, John Hanna manages to seduce Gwyneth Paltrow by reciting the Spanish Inquisition sketch. Really? And any of Monty Python fan out there will tell you that that has never worked as a seduction technique <laughs> for any man. Certainly not yeah. for Gwyneth. Gwyneth Paltrow isn't going to go out with someone who knows all the, the work. She'd go, write your own fucking stuff. Stop copying the Spanish Inquisition. Do you say? He doesn't even do it very well, Michael. That's what annoys me. I would have done it much better. It's the, it's the Gwyneth Paltrow thing to interest me. <laughs> yeah. Did, I mean, you should have given I mean, it a go. You were the actual I, I guy. Know. Imagine I don't if you know about that. Gwyneth Paltrow, but I wouldn't have gone straight for Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought this is the person. No, this isn't the... Some, somebody else, you know, yeah. Judy Dench, possibly. <laughs> yeah, Judy would have a great laugh at this. But Gwyneth, I'd have thought, hello, no, it, keep it a little bit more sort of... Yeah. ...vaginal. <laughs> <laughs> so those were the days. Yeah. Those were early days. What do I know? That would make Nobody me... expects a vaginal candle. <laughs> <laughs> no one did expect see, it, yes, to be fair. There's an audience here, it's worked. <laughs> Maybe there was something there. But, um, he anyway. improvised the whole new scene to Life of Brian backstage, so, you know, you, there's... <laughs> you're going to have to look at your extras. <laughs> um, let's see what... I mean, there's a lot to talk Let, we'll, Let's talk about... I mean, uh, the problem with you, and we've got an hour, is that you've done, I would say, seven careers very adeptly in your life. And, uh, so North you've been Korea a... being the last one. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Sorry. <laughs> That's um... <was> very rude. <laughs> but you've re- I've, I was listening to Erebus, your fantastic it's sort of history book with, with, uh, about uh, the ship, that Erebus, yeah. which I didn't know anything about. Um, uh, what I like about your interest in history is that, uh, like, well, a you're a character. You're sort of a part of the of the 
the book in that you're, you're going back and, and seeing all these places and, and yeah. revealing what you think about it as well, which I think is a very interesting way of writing a book. But I, I like the way you home in on the small historical details, which is, I guess, is a sort of what you do in Python as well. But there's, you talk about the guy who had been in the Battle of Trafalgar, I think, and would walk around London with a ship on his head recreating the yeah, Battle of Trafalgar. Yeah, That's yeah, a so great ca- character yeah. to spot out of history. Yeah. Uh, there's a guy who uh, chokes on a piece of beef that he's thrown up. Is it something like that, isn't there? There's some, yeah, it, I mean, they're, they're the... all there are wonderful things in in the research, yeah. which actually um, what what always attracts me are the, are the little eccentric stories. I mean, not not. I mean, I, I quite like the, the big idea of the journey of the Erebus to Antarctica. The fact that nobody knew anything about that journey. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I read history, and no one ever told me. And they were there, you know, a little sailing ship goes to Antarctica, the first ship to circumnavigate Antarctica. They're there for four years. They come back um, with hardly any illness on board, nearly everyone, all of them still alive. It's a truly stunning story. But what interests me is when I started researching, it's just the little things like um, there's one part where they're, they're um, just in the ice sheet and they're, they're trapped and there is a terrific storm. And when there's a storm in the ice sheet, the ice flows just sort of rise up and crack, and it, it sounds a hideous thing. And there's, um, the wind blows, and at one point it blows a fish, thwack, onto the side of the, the, the ship on the deck. In, yeah. in the deck. And um, they all think this is amazing. The ship, that, there's this fish just sort of <laughs> splattered there, like sort of Tom and Jerry from something like that. So they all get the, um, they say, this is, this is remarkable. Um, this, go back and, and um, get, get a pen and paper and make a little sketch of this. And by the time they come back, the ship's cat has eaten it. <laughs> Just, the fact there's a ship's cat around about the North Pole still alive yeah. and eaten this thing. And then later to find out, and this was somebody, I thought that was an amazing story anyway, but somebody read the book and said, did I know that this was not just an ordinary fish, this was a deep water, um, ice, ice codfish. Right. And they're very, very rare, and very few people have ever seen them. <laughs> and there's a French textbook all about great discoveries of the, of the, in the piscine world. <laughs> Is that the word? <laughs> <Piscine>. uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, pescatorial world. <laughs> and it mentions this this um, this uh, uh, fish that was blown onto the deck of HMS Erebus, all in French. You know, découvrez par le chat qui l'a mangé. So it's in the history books, you know, yeah. this wretched cat, Etz, probably the only glimpse of this historic fish, which I think is absolutely brilliant, you know? That cat's a hero in the cat history books, isn't it? The only, yeah, the only yeah, cat. Yeah, that's right. He's only yeah. ever ate an yes. Well, it should be a hero. Yeah. It lasted the voyage, as far yeah. as I know. Right. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. The fact they took cats and they took goats and on the voyage north to the Northwest Passage... Um, John Franklin commanding his wife, Lady Jane Franklin, was a bit of a character, and she um, sent them a, um, a monkey. So this is what you'll need on the journey to the <laughs> to the Arctic is a monkey. It's called Jacko. Yeah. So there we are. I don't know what it did. Presumably, oh, that's Jacko now. Yeah. <laughs> are you all right, Jacko? <laughs> oh, a bit cold. <laughs> The first monkey to go to the Arctic. First monkey to go to the Maybe maybe he's still around. It's a wonderful thing to think that his his, progeny may have 
be still around somewhere down there. And this is, this is silly. Yeah, we don't want to be silly. But was, what, I, what I like about an audio book is whether you wrote, that you're reading your own audio book is always fantastic when the author reads it, so you get an extra dimension. In all of the history, of, it would be nice if you could have that. Is there an author that you would like to have heard read their own books on an audio book from the past when, before this technology existed? Yeah, yeah. I'd like to have... Um... I mean, well, there's Roman authors, mm. Sallust and Cicero and Ovid and Seneca. They're all so brilliant. I used to think, you know, it's Rome, it's Latin. It was called at school, and I didn't get on well with Latin. Right. But now I read translations of them, and they're wonderfully up-to-date and modern. And I'd love to hear, you know, how they, how they read. I mean, Ovid, how did Ovid speak? Ooh, <laughs> you know, some louder, don't you? some. Oh, was it in a funny voice like that? Yeah, oh... Oh, could I do something? Oh, shut up, Bobbeed. Shut up, Bobbeed. <laughs> Cicero. Oh, I've got a lovely house in Rome. We don't go there very often because we live up in, off the Appian Way. Have you ever done it, the Appian Way? It's, very, it's quite exciting, really. Get on top of one route like that. <laughs> Sorry. Good. Don't feel sorry for anything no, you've I said. Uh, you must, you must, I sorry. don't want you to apologize. My wife would be very embarrassed. <laughs> we She'd won't say, let you her talk listen. too much. We won't let her listen to it. Okay. It'll be fine. You, you're allowed to talk as much as you want. Uh, you've still not talked as much as Brian Blessed. So it's. Um, it's, <laughs> it's <fun. laughs> yeah, yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Tell me about the fact, I didn't know this until I looked up on Wikipedia, so it might not be true but it's in two articles on Wikipedia, that you were in the film You've Got Mail and got cut out of it entirely. Yes. Oh, good. Uh, that's the, no, seems I'm... the most unlikely thing no, that you would I'm, be I'm, in that film. I'm, I'm very glad that you brought that up. Because <laughs> it's one of the most awkward, difficult and embarrassing moments of my, good. my entire life. <laughs> All right, OK. I got... Let's talk about this. You don't want to know about it. Let... We're all grown up. Let's discuss what happened. I was offered a part in You've Got Mail with Tom Hanks and 
Meg Ryan? Meg Ryan, yeah. And uh, Nora Ephron yes, Nora. got in touch with me and said, we'd love you to do this part, will you come over? And I went over to New York just for a costume fitting on Concord. <laughs> That's what sort of film it was. Yeah. Then I come back and then I get Concord again to go and do the acting bit. And I played a sort of character like a Thomas Pynchon, you know, one of those sort of mysterious characters in the, the, um, you know, the literary world in America who wrote brilliant books but was an odd character. Right. And I go into the shop at one point and fancy Meg Ryan and start sort of chatting her up. And uh, the Spanish Inquisition sketch, that would have worked. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, they Meg. love it out there. Uh-huh. Maybe uh, the cheese shop she'd have liked. Yes, I think... Uh, Just your bits, no. I no, don't think no. so. I'm not quite sure okay. I really got through to her. <laughs> Interesting to know what sketch she might have liked. <laughs> mm, yeah. Anyway. Um, so we'll get over there, and it's a week, a, a most extraordinary week of... of super high-powered sort of American-style filming. You know, we, 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 um, the, the scenes we did were at night. We shot the Upper West Side. Whole streets were closed off. And the huge lamps came just for me and Meg <laughs> to do a scene, you know? And, and then we'd be there doing... And I'd be doing my words and she'd be doing this. And it was just absolutely colossal and wonderful and amazing. And Meg's husband um, that time was... I uh, can't remember who it would be, but one of these big American stars right. who had a bit of a problem, I think, with the juice, but anyway. Okay. And he'd ring up rather a lot in the middle of... Well, not quite in the middle of a scene, but when we were just waiting around. Uh, how are you doing, Megan? He said, oh, hi, honey. Yeah, hi, yeah. Uh, can I speak to Michael? <laughs> <laughs> so I speak to this man. I can't, I can't remember. He's a, he's a great star. But... Don... Dennis, Dennis Quaid. I was going to say you. Dennis Quaid. Absolutely, Dennis Quaid. I knew it was. I knew it was something drinkable. Anyway, Dennis Quaid. <laughs> and Dennis. Hi, Michael. How are you doing? Uh, you getting on all right? Yeah, it's fine. No, it's just I'm drink. I'm talking to Dennis Quaid, <laughs> and Meg's there waiting to do the scene, and there's huge lights all around us. So when I heard that I was cut, it was. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. That's. I mean, you've been. I'll in, tell you. I'll tell no. you about that. Just. If I can yes, just please. break in in brown blessed fashion no, and tell don't. you how I found out, um, this was about sort of six months later, and we were starting on a series called the Hemingway Adventure, and I, for some reason, decided to work with a new crew and a new director, and this director came round for the first meeting with me, and he kind of came to my house and, and we just started and the phone rings. And I pick up the phone. Oh, hi, Nora. It's Nora Ephron. (laughs) (laughs) You can see his face. Wow. And I'm saying, yep, hi, Nora. Oh. (laughs) Oh. Yep, no, no. Well, I, 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 I quite understand. I quite understand if it's not, didn't work in the story terms. I can understand the strategy. So at the end, I put the phone down. Yes, that was Nora Ephron. Oh, what did she want? She wanted to tell me that I'd been cut from <laughs> You've Got Mail. <laughs> and a very good friend of mine calls the, still to this day calls the film You've Got Cut. <laughs> 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 but I don't regret the week I spent in New York. No. It was absolutely wonderful. I mean, if I'd been Nora Ephron, I would have emailed that to you. That would have been funny, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, and well, the, probably <laughs> they talked about this a lot. Yeah. What shall we do, honey? Shall we just shall we just sort of tell him? We've got to tell him. <laughs> yeah, who's got to tell him? Can someone tell him? Do we have a lawyer can tell him? No, no, I'm going to tell him. Yeah. He probably might, won't answer. They might have got away with if you hadn't seen. You know, you don't always see. The things I've been sacked from sometimes, as a writer sometimes, you think, I probably wouldn't have watched it. They didn't need to tell me. that They didn't use yeah. the yes. thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, but it, is, it is an unfinished story. I've never... Maybe I've seen the film, but I wouldn't... You know, it's not it's, very good, Michael. That's why I'm surprised you... Uh, oh, no, but you bring it up, because the interesting point is this. I would quite like to know why I didn't work. Yeah. You know? I would like to see... I don't think my performance was that bad, no. but it was fairly ordinary. And I wasn't sort of inhabiting the character <laughs> uh, that well. Is it not even in the deleted scenes on the DVD? You've seen... Like, you've got to be so hurtful. <laughs> Straight for the jugular. Let's, let's, uh, jugular. let's do it. Was it not even in the deleted scenes? <laughs> for the Australian and Irish versions? <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. And you're absolutely right. I feel like, you know, when Stalin really took to against people, they just they were written out of history. They'd never even mentioned their name. Yeah. Do you have to even see the Michael Palin scene? Michael who? <laughs> you did get your bits in some films, though, so it's all right. You were in time. Time. You were in time. You were in Brazil. That was a fantastic. Uh, yeah. yeah. Fantastic performance in Brazil. It's, it must be, I mean, obviously, it's the middle part of your diary. We might talk about your diaries. This time is not, oh, there isn't lots of time. Um, but, you know, you had this, this period where you yeah. were going out to Hollywood and, and appearing in, or, you know, or in the, you're here not, in, not in much, films. Not much, really. Right. I mean, the Hollywood thing was, was <laughs> you've got <cut. laughs> I'm really saying yeah. I'm yeah. trying to lift it up yeah. now. This, I was no. trying to go into the successes. No, I mean, the good things that work well across the world, like, like Fish Called Wanda yeah. and Brazil, were all shot here. Right, and that yeah. was a, made a difference because they were shot with British crews. I'm sorry, yeah, that sounds terribly... Shot with British crews, <laughs> eating British food <laughs> and voting to keep Britain. <laughs> Marie, what is it? I can't remember anyway, whatever. I don't want to talk about that. Um, <laughs> but but it was a diff- there was a difference. It was kind of... All the Python films, we worked very often with the same crew. Sure. Terry Gilliam worked with the same crew. And we had some wonderful, wonderful people, really excellent craftsmen, not just shooting it, but also doing makeup, costume, and all that. So um, there was a difference. I never really did Hollywood. Um, well, but I, I, I sort of meant generally you, would, you, know, you, were, you were a film star, I suppose, is what I was, I was, I was getting to. And you, and yeah. you say Fish Called Wonder, you won the band yeah. for Fish Called Wonder? Yeah, I suppose so. So, amazing film. Yeah. Brazil, amazing film. Time Bandits is a, Time Bandits is, is a film about time travel that I approve of, which yeah. is a very, oh, well, very hard to... Yeah. Which I know you wrote as well. Well, with, with Terry Gilliam. Yeah. Terry Gilliam had the initial idea, so you should talk to him. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's, that, that was terrific. I, I mean, I'm very... I had a run of films, Afterlife of Brian, The Meaning of Life, and then we did The, the Missionary, which is my own stab at uh, writing and uh, Brazil and, and Private Function which I loved the Alan yeah. Bennett film um, and that was that was a joy to do and again a great team and a great lot of actors there and working with Maggie Maggie Smith for, sure. the, for the second time yeah. that's quite something I'm a lucky man <laughs> And I love that you also, I think you went to do things like Saturday Night Live. I think you, you host that four times. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the story about you taking your mum. Your mum was in it as well. Right? 
Yes, yeah. Um, they, um, I, for my mum's 80th birthday, 1988, would that be right? Yes, that's right. Um, no, it was born in 1904. So, 84, sorry, 1984. Um, I decided I would take her to um, New York. And I'd been asked to do um, Saturday Night Live again. And uh, I thought, this will be good. I'll, I'll take her and my sister and we'll all go over there. And uh, we flew with my mum in Concord to New York. And, I mean, she'd never been on a... Well, she'd been on a plane once before. <laughs> but this was basically 30 years since she'd been on a plane. <laughs> and so we get to New York and it's just incredible. I said, how about that, eh, mum? She said, what do we do now? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? I mean, wasn't that amazing? Yeah, three hours, eight minutes. Yeah, where, where, where someone come pick us up in a minute and all that. <laughs> Typical mother stuff. Yeah. I realised that she thought all planes travelled to New York in three hours and eight minutes. <laughs> this is just what had happened since she last went on a, on a propeller flight to Latouke or wherever. Um, and so um, we took her there. But anyway, we had the meeting with Lorne Michaels, the producer and everybody... And we were talking about my monologue, the opening monologue, what could you do? I said, oh, I said, funny, I forgot my mother's here with me. And Lorne thought it was a great idea. And I said, perhaps I could bring my mother into the monologue. And he said, that's a brilliant idea. She'd be the oldest host ever to come on Saturday Night Live. So at the age of 80, I wrote her, and she came on and did this show. Again, in front of, you know, it goes out to about 50 million Americans, absolutely live. <laughs> Um, and she just thought it was, oh, that's very nice, dear, what do I do? I just sit there, oh, yeah, yeah. So when I did the opening monologue, I'd come on and talk about the great thing about being in America, and she'd just say, adjust my coat and say, well, you, well, you decided to wear that, did you, dear, or something like that. No. So it was very touching, really. And she was so good at doing the opening bit that they gave us various other moments during the show to introduce wild heavy metal groups, you know, and all that. <laughs> and their names, the, um, the, uh, the Pixtel or whatever it was, you know, and she, she did, she was just fantastic. Yeah. And I realised that she's not really on that planet at all. <laughs> it meant nothing to her. Um, so it was all new, and she was just sitting in a chair like I am now, forgetting she was on one of the most popular comedy shows in the world, live. <laughs> oh, hello, dear. <laughs> yeah, it was so fine just now. Oh, so you... you... You obviously were hanging out with the Saturday Night Live cast in that, that sort of period, 70s and 80s, I guess, was that? That was the 80s in that particular There was a lot of hanging out. Yeah. We hung out. Mike, you, you want to hang out? Yeah, I'm going to hang out. Because you don't see... You and John Belushi, or you and, uh, you know... Ackroyd, done not Ackroyd? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they had a quite... They were big party animals, I think, at least to say, those, those guys. Y- yes, yeah, they were. I mean, they had their own kind of world... I don't know where they came from, although Dan Aykroyd was very was quite sensible right. and constructive in his writing and all that. Belushi was a bit crazy. They were all terribly nice. They loved Python yeah. and all that. And Bill Murray was the one I, I got to know best of all. Oh, cool. Bill was just great. I mean, he'd say anything to anybody, but he was very bright and very sharp and all that. And we'd go out and eat. What they did, it was the writers, really, who were the wild ones. The, the writers right. lived on coke, you know. They yeah. wouldn't so... Yeah, when we wrote Python, we worked nine to five, usually. I mean, maybe after that. Um, and these guys wouldn't start 
writing till nine in the evening and then it'd be nine to five in the morning. Right, so yeah. And they couldn't get anything done till they all got a little bit sort of stoned and I was just sort of drinking a, you know, maybe a Budweiser or something <laughs> equally horrible. Yeah. Um, but not, not at all damaging to the brain. And they'd all be getting high and say, hey, well, that's a crazy idea and all that. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. But there were, there were sort of, it was a hit and miss show but a terrific experience to do because you know the great mess of the show that was rehearsed during the week right up to the last minute you do we do a sort of dress rehearsal and then there was an hour before you were on at 10 30 live everything was live and things would be changed and lawn would come around and say we cut that sketch we cut this sketch we're going to put you in that sketch we're going to bring this up here and this was just before so it really was the excitement, the absolute excitement of doing live, live television. So. And were you hanging around? You hanging around a lot of musicians. Obviously, you mentioned the, the George Harrison, you yeah, good friends with, and uh, uh, Keith Moon. I think I remember was came to see you when you were writing Life of Brian. Is that right? Is that in the diary? yeah, yeah, yeah? Musicians have always had a kind of. Um, I've always got on very well with musicians. I love them and respect them, and I think they just, I just am so in awe of what good musicians. Uh, and bands can do, but there were there was always a sort of connection with Python. I didn't yeah. know they they liked Python. They sort of saw us as the sort of verbal equivalent of the music they made. And I mean, not Life of um, Sorry, uh, Holy Grail would probably not have been made if we didn't have various um, pop groups who put money in, like Genesis and uh, um, I can't remember who who the others were, but there there were. Um, three or four of the big groups at that time yeah. all put money into Python because they wanted to see it and all that. And, of course, George, who, who as you rightly say, <clears throat> put money into um, Life of Brian after EMI, the big English company, had backed out because the head of, head of EMI had read the script and said, you know, we can't, we can't do this. It's revolting, disgusting and immoral. And uh, George came up with five... Five million um, dollars, as I've said, yeah. and was asked why. You know why? That's an awful lot, George. Said, well, you know, I just wanted to see it. <laughs> um, this is just great, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and George produced uh, uh, the Lumberjack song. We did a version of the Lumberjack song. George was very keen on the Lumberjack song. Right. In fact, one of his aliases when he went around the world was Jack Lumber. So you'd say, you know, <laughs> right to various hotels. And we did the Lumberjack songs up all night doing it. And um, it, I think it, it peaked at about uh, 49 on the top 50. <laughs> 49 and falling. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, but let's no. go. Can we talk a little bit about uh, uh, Terry Jones? Uh, and I'm just, I just think it's the, the friendship you had with Terry is just an extraordinary lifelong friendship with, with, with Terry, yeah. which is really exemplified by the, la- the last few years of his life where you were just going to see him every week. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, sort of, it's one of the most beautiful human love stories that I've... That I can well, think. But it's just so... It's so when you, when you, talk, you, you write about it on, on your website, I'm presuming your uh, diary about... Uh, and, or you sort of wrote, wrote a eulogy to Yeah. Him. I um, mean, uh, it's... It, there are many relationships like that, I'm sure. It's just because, I suppose, we were in the public spotlight and part of Python and all that. But, I mean, Terry was somebody I 
I just sort of admired when I first saw him at Oxford and he had a sort of this dark, intense sort of, um, I say, sort of Welsh passion. Although Terry's great problem was he wasn't, although he was born in Wales, in Colwyn Bay, he moved uh, at, say, the age of about two and a half to Isha <laughs> in Surrey. Um, and if you're, you're a passionate Welshman, Isha doesn't look good on your CV at all, really. <laughs> There was something about Terry which I loved and he was just interested in things and he was good at things and he had an energy but he also had a way, he had a wonderful way of, 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 of he was a wonderful friend, wonderful, he, he, he relished companionship and just being with somebody and hanging out. And I think that's terribly important and we did a lot of work together and we wrote a lot and performed a lot together but what I remember... Most of all, was just hanging out with Terry, going to have a drink and things like that. You know, he loved, he loved his drink, he loved his food, he ran a brewery at one time um, because he always felt there was something he could do better than anybody else. But not in, a, not in an unpleasant sort of, um, you know, uh, arrogant way in any shape or form. It was quite the opposite. He was just, he said, oh, we've got to try this, we've got to try that. Well, let's do this, let's do that. And I was a little bit more relaxed and, and lazy. And Terry pushed me into doing things I wouldn't have done before. So it was a very nice, it was a nice relationship. Yeah. And we just got on it ever so well. Um, it's difficult, though, if you work, you know, I've been in writing partnerships, I've been in comedian yeah. partnerships. It's very difficult to, to keep the, the friendship that usually will at least start the thing off. Yes. It's very difficult to keep it burning that long. So it's sort of incredible that yeah. you were there. It was difficult at one time because we did the Ripping Yarns together and the yeah. BBC didn't want... They wanted me to do a show of my own. And I said, I want to work with Terry. So they said, oh, yeah, fine. And, and in the end, they, they said, well, I, I think we just have one Python as the star rather than two, otherwise it looks like the end of Python or something like that. Right. So in the end, Terry didn't appear in a lot of the Ripping Yarns. And, and that was a very difficult time. Right. I think it was the right decision in the end, but... Yeah, no, that was that was again Terry being incredibly generous. He was the comp- most undevious person I've ever met. Terry was so wonderfully sort of open. He never he didn't do strategy. He didn't do sort of cunning, yeah. which is why he didn't get on with John. <laughs> yeah. and he was such a sort of target for John's devious cunning <laughs> methods. Um, but it was a lovely, lovely quality in Terry. Yeah, and he, he, he wrote uh, a book about the Knight's Tale, which I, which I studied for A-level, which was sort of iconoclastic against the, the literary yeah. views of Chaucer, but was yeah. so clearly correct. Yeah. We did use... I met him shortly afterwards in a bookshop and said, oh, I, did, I used your book in my A-level. He said, oh, I hope you didn't fail as a result. And was, yeah. I didn't, so thank you for that. But he was an incredibly yeah. clever historian. And he was clever, and also he, he did his research. Yeah. Uh, and he, he would go to the libraries all around the world to do research on the Knight's Tale and all that. And so amongst Chaucer scholars, he was both a sort of admired figure by some yeah. and a kind of feared by others because, you know, they would say, well, he's not really, you know, this is... He's got these views totally different to every way everyone has... We've all done it. Um, and he was... In, in, he, he just sort of stirred things up brilliantly. Yeah. And um, Chaucer's Night was a, a totally different take on, you know, this, this 
I mean, Terry saw Chaucer's, Chaucer was writing ironically on this fair, wonderful night and all that. It wasn't really that at all. Chaucer was sending him up rotten, you know. Terry saw everybody <laughs> as sort of potential Python characters yeah. he liked, you know. And Chaucer would have been a great Python character because he could send up these, these very rich people. And, and then he found enough in the text to make a case of it. And, yeah. and it was a lot of scholars said this is breakthrough um, research. But it's quite hard to go from comedy into that academic world of yeah. universities and studies and societies and all that. People don't like you going in there. They see comedians as sort of you know, revolutionaries or something. Yeah. I mean, you've, a little bit, you've written novels yourself and I think maybe suffered from that yeah. snobbishness as well because your novels are, are great. And I think it's very hard for, like, a literary... You know, people, I, yes. I think as a comedian as well, I've written plays, yeah. as you've written plays as well, and people are saying, oh, it's a comedian writing a play, and then there's a judgment immediately about yeah. which you wouldn't get if you were... Yeah, there's a little, absolute little bit, stick to one thing. Yeah, you yeah. know, we do plays, we do poems or whatever. I mean, I'm not saying that, there's rather lots of poets who kind of really like, like me, but, but there are there's certainly... I think it's in the academic, the critical world of academia, which is very tight world, which is very hanging on to um, their... their you know, they are the guardians of the reputation of this particular strand mm. of the arts and all that, which is crazy. You should be able to see any, say anything in any way. You should be able to fail, fail better, as Beckett said or whatever. But there should never really be this standard of this is, this is what is brilliant and you are not it, <laughs> which uh, I've come across. I've come across that as well, yeah. Michael. I think yeah. probably more than yes. you have, to be honest. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I sort of agree... <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Of course, everything I do, I feel huge doubt about. And will this work? And will it not work? But to be told that there is something that does work because we know what it is, that seems to insufferably arrogant and yes. intolerable. Yes. I'm, I'm sorry, if any critics said, I don't really mean you. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. They're a lovely, terrific. <laughs> London Review of Books. Fantastic. So good to wrap stuff in. <laughs> No, it is. So I caught a bit of your North Korea uh, travelogue as well. You've obviously done... You've been everywhere, as we were talking about backstage, that you're off to ask where you haven't been. But um, the North Korea one's pretty astonishing. But I I saw the bit... I just actually, completely by chance, the other day, flicked over and you were on, and you were talking to the guy on the board, the guy with the big... uh, The military guy. Oh, yes, yes. But uh, you you were talking about... um, I think I started writing it down because I watched it again. uh, You know, that you... Well, you were trying to talk to that guy, A, asking about who, who'd won the war and who'd yeah. lost the war, and, and obviously yes. in, in North Korea, not allowed to question those things. No. And increasingly, and, and anywhere else, you're not allowed to question mm. any of your leaders. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Trump is really very much like he could be, he could be leading North Korea <laughs> very well, That's soon. why he got on so well with Kim Jong-un. Yeah, I think so. Despite calling each other awful things, a mentally retarded dotard, yeah. Kim Jong-un called Trump. So at least he got something right. But, um, and Trump got a little rocket man and all that. Yeah. And they traded insults, but they, from, they came from the same place. They, that just, this is, this is how, they, how they behave in power. Yeah. You know, you can call people these ridiculous names. Anyway, but you were sorry, talking to this guy on. and just saying, you know, people yeah. meet each other and you hope people recognise that we're all the same. And, and if you travel, which you obviously have and you've met people, you get to 
Mm. You just sort of hope that this. You're trying to trying to solve this North Korea South Korea problem by just saying why don't we all be nice to each other and not fight each other? But yeah, pretty. He wet. sort of agreed with you, didn't he? He sort of went, yeah, I'd, I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like the world to be in peace as well. Do you think if you were in charge of you decided to become a politician rather than a comedian and <laughs> author, <laughs> we could have. Yeah. Do you think, Mike? Because you know, I think you get voted for. If you stood for prime minister, people would vote for you, and then you could just say. We're going to be nice. We're just going to yeah, say, I mean, let's be nice to each other. Stop lying I and be nice to each other. I don't think you could win on being nice to each other. I just, I think you've got to be a bit more than that. <laughs> like it's worth a try. Um, the very, very nice party. Let's have those. <laughs> when it comes down nice. to the, the North Let's be South nice Korea. to everybody. You see, I'd yeah. be nice to people in Europe. And that would be terribly unpopular in this country. Yeah. Um, and Germans are rather nice. <laughs> <laughs> The Albanians, should we, should we, not Albanians. Gosh, we're so lucky we're not Albanian. And just uh, so I think I'd probably find a bit problem there. But yeah. um, what was your question? <laughs> Sorry. Well, See, I that's why think... I wouldn't be a good politician. <laughs> just, I just think it was very simple. And actually, the guy they were all very suspicious of you. And then you said this thing to this guy, and yes. he shook your hand, yeah, yeah. and he just said, "I would like to see a world where it's, it's peace as well." It's really what everyone wants. I know it's not that simple, yeah. and you know it's not that simple, <coughs> but it's sort of. It's better than just people saying we're going to blow each other up. You know? Yeah. That was one of the surprising things about North Korea, which I have to say, I have a sneaking admiration for North Korea. Right. It's this small country. Okay, you know, they may have terrible concentration camps, um, but you don't know. Nobody actually knows. Yeah. And I wouldn't say there's any country in the world that's entirely, um, you know, without some sort of unpleasant... Uh, you know, punishment areas or whatever they are. So I'm not, but be that as it may, we didn't see all that, and I'm quite sure we missed out on some bit. But they believe in they believe in themselves and what they can do. They actually they can enjoy themselves. They work. Um, they're, they're, they're quite intelligent, quite clever. They've done an awful lot. But this is a tiny little mountainous country. Um, cut off from anywhere, which has managed to sort of survive after a century of Japanese occupation mm-hmm. and ten years of, you know, a few, sorry, three or four years of American bombing. They've actually kind of survived reasonably intact. Mm. There are not people with guns on the streets. It's not a place that has no humour. It's not a place that's utterly grim and, and, and gloomy, which I thought it might be when I went there. So it's, it's, I'm still trying to work out in my mind what's going on but you're always you know your travel documents are always about the meeting the people it's not a you're you're interested about the people of the country and the way the country works there's a lovely bit in the in the north korea one where you you talk you're talking to a young woman and trying to explain what your job is and you show her the fish slapping sketch from monty python yeah and i think she genuinely thinks that is your job not not that you're a comedian that your job because she asked you if the fish were were alive (laughs) <laughs> that was, I didn't expect that because yeah. I, I, we were stuck in this airport and, and Suyang was very nice, and I, but I was a bit worried that I'd been rather sort of heavy-handed in some of the interviews, asking her too much about the great leaders, which you're not supposed to talk about. And we just ran out of things to talk about. And, and so, yes, she asked um, what else there was, and the director <laughs> had, rather surprisingly, brought along the fish slapping dance. Right. And, uh, and it was so funny watching watching it with her. And she says, and, uh, this is what you do? <laughs> and I thought, that's a very good question. So I said, well, I, 
Yeah, I used to, a long time ago. Yeah. As you rightly say, she had this lovely thing about... But um, the fish, was it dead or alive? <laughs> <laughs> she was worried about the fish, yeah, rather about than you falling in the water. Uh, very pythonic. <laughs> and uh, you're a, a, you are a big diary writer. You're still, I presume, mm. still writing your diaries. Am I going to be in the Am I going to be in the diary tonight? Well, <laughs> it's been a hell of a day. Richard. <laughs> I've been I've been panic buying in Marks and Spencer's. You, yeah. So there's obviously got to be something about the toilet roll yeah. situation. Fair enough. Um, oh, that has to come it's, first. It's a tricky time for all of us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. If I've got time tomorrow morning, and yeah. I, I'm not promising anything, <laughs> they'll squeeze something yeah. in about, I don't, about, you, what, about the end of the day. It won't be out no. for a, quite a long time, will it? You're still, you're still coming up to 2010, and your next volume comes up to 2010. No, it won't be out for a long, long time. Yeah, so no, you can say long, what you long like. Time. I'll probably be... <laughs> I might die before I've written your name in there. That's, that a, that's a real problem. I, I'll, try and, I'll try and... I'll try. I've, 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 I've been keeping a blog every day since November the 25th, 2002. So I've done, I've done a diary every single day that is a public one, which is slightly different, obviously. Yes. So, but mine, mine goes out on the night. So I think I have, I understand well, that impetus to, to record everything. But it's an amazing mm. thing to, and you don't, and in, in, in the, the mm. books you put out aren't the whole thing, are they? You edit the, you edit it. Oh, you have to edit because I write an awful lot. I mean, it's just recording what you did the day before, and uh, I, I started '69 because my. We had a one-year-old son, and I was a smoker at the time. And I, I could, you know, he'd get on my knee and want to give me a hug and I'd get a cigarette out of the way and all that. And he'd pick up the butt out of the ashtray and start eating that. And I thought, no, cigarette smoking and, and, and fatherhood don't work. And I just gave up, really, over about a couple of days. I just virtually gave up smoking cold turkey like that. And I thought, if my will is strong enough to do that, what else can I do? And keeping a diary is one of those things I've always wanted to do. And so I started. And it was very hesitant for the first year, which is now really irritating, because it's all about the birth of Python. Yes. But mostly it's about my son walking and saying his first word, not about John Cleese doing the pet shop sketch and all that (laughs) sort of stuff. But that's all on film anyway, so that's one thing. But I'm, I'm glad I kept at it. I think the thing about diaries is that you think what you're writing is very trivial. Had egg for breakfast, you know, but you never know in 30 years' time when, you know, eggs have sort of poisoned us all or something like that. <laughs> God, they ate them for breakfast. <laughs> they ate them, a whole egg for breakfast. So, I mean, just lots of little details in life become far more interesting at a distance. You think, did I really do that? I mean, like the fact I'm right about driving through London. I stopped here, parked the car, going into Harrods or I didn't go to Harrods. <laughs> didn't go to Harrods. That was a slip of the tongue. Um, <laughs> went into Bieber or something like that. Yeah. Bought myself a little outfit. And the fact you can actually just park <laughs> park your car absolutely anywhere in London. Yeah. And, and that just seemed natural then. And, and, and now it's sort of, you know, uh, absolutely possible. You have to plan a journey in London several days in advance. Yes. All the various bits of accreditation. You've got to take out a bank loan to park it. And then, you know, you're in traffic for four hours getting down Gower Street. It is... It boring, I'm, I know. No, it's not boring. Someone's got to say it's it. It's not boring, it's not boring. I'm just... Uh, Meg don't... Ryan asked that about. <laughs> <laughs> it all went what, wrong at Meg Ryan. The, what's this the traffic the... like? What are they yeah. doing in the Tantum Court Road, <laughs> Gower Street area? Meg, I don't know. I don't know. 
there's a policy now to try and create environmental areas. Oh, you mean like Idaho? No, no, it's, it's kind of just... Um, I was also just wanted to quickly mention the clangers. Put me on to we, Dennis. I want to. I want to mention the clangers. You still talking to? Are you still talking to my wife? <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about traffic control in London. Okay, that's okay. What are you wearing? <laughs> Sorry. You're the new narrator of the clangers. My ah. children. My son watches that. Yeah. Does that? It was quite. That's love that. Well, it's a, and also I, I, I mean I love that kind of vaulting of the centuries, but there'll be people in the 22nd century who will remember you reading, doing the clangers. Well, yeah. That might be the, that might be the thing. That might that, be the thing, that yeah, might be exactly. The thing that, but definitely that might be the thing. That, that, that and you've got cut. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, there are many... No, the clangers, I really love doing that. It's such a... a part, partly because it's such a beautifully produced um, series, the way they create these little creatures, and yeah. they were, they're quite anarchic. Um, and they have their own little world, and um, you know it seems to be. It's there's a lot of music in it. Um, there's a lot of inventiveness. There's a lot of colour, and basically they're quite nice to each other. <laughs> it's about a sense of community. All these people, they might do rather odd things, but they all live together, and 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 sort of um, you know bang along together on this planet. Yeah, that, that might, might be quite the nice, really. That might be the answer. We all just go and live on a little moon with a suit dragon. Yes, well, too many nice of people. us, really. There's only about eight clangers. <laughs> <laughs> 80 billion or whatever we've got. Just, just, very just too many. Yeah. We are. We've completely run out of time. Oh, no. Uh, you're doing a Doctor Who thing as well, I want to mention, with the Torchwood self-help. You play, you play an evil self-help tape. Yes, now that's interesting. Yeah. Gosh, now you're bringing I up know. things no one's ever talked about, which is why you're so good at the <laughs> job you, you do. <laughs> I suddenly realised that right. was a bit too I much. Can, I do. I, can, I admire uh, this man. I admire this man. I can write that in quotes and no one will know that you pulled a funny face <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, no, I did the Torchwood thing was, was, was extraordinary. Quite out of the blue. Brilliant bit of writing. Yeah. And I could be quite menacing. And uh, I love that. It's a bit like playing the character in Brazil, whereas... Pretty nasty, you know. You're good so, at nasty, that's the thing. I mean, everyone says you're nice. Mm. But yeah, no. Yeah, there's they, definitely something inside there. They don't know the half of it. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid <laughs> bastards. <that they're> <laughs> well, <laughs> I, 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 we're going to have to wrap up, um, but uh, I would like to thank you for everything you've done, and uh, you've been thank an enormous uh, influence on my career. I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing without you. Uh, I sort of followed... <laughs> I was in the Oxford Review. I watched Comic Roots Oxford again. Oxford Review? And, yes. I, and I went, oh my God, there's, that's the Oxford Review jazz cellar where we first did comedy. Oh, that's Johnson Terrace where we stayed in. Yeah. And uh, I thought, I'm, I'm like an unsuccessful Michael Palin. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I'm like Michael Palin. They went, oh, oh no, God. fuck off now. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm the unsuccessful Michael Palin. <laughs> but uh, no, it's, it's uh, the, the, obviously the work that, I mean, obviously you feel that about the goons, but the work that, uh, that all the Pythons did. Uh, is incredible. It was wonderful. I, I was saying backstage, it was wonderful. I was very reticent about going to see the uh, O2 gig, and I went to the final night. I made a very last-minute decision. I'm very delighted. I saw it. It was incredible. And you were—you looked like you were about 53. The others looked like they're about 94. <laughs> um, drugs, drugs. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was a, a wonderful. That was, that was uh, extraordinary shows. Those, and I didn't think they were going to work out. Yeah. And I thought we were taking a hell of a risk, and could be seen as being amazingly greedy. 
because we're only doing it for the money. <laughs> but actually, it turned out to be something much better. It was a real celebration, and every night um, was different because people forgot their lines, <laughs> and the audience loved it because they would come in and they knew all the sketches and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And John managed to get up on stage. That was pretty amazing. <laughs> Unaided. Yeah. yeah. The nurses and the equipment all stayed just out of vision. You can't just see the tops of their heads. But you can't see the tubes or anything like that. He whips them out, he goes on, does a sketch, and then goes straight back. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm delighted. That's all right. I'm delighted you did that. It was a wonderful uh, swan song for the Python guys. Let's thank the and, NHS for that show. And uh, I'm sure... I'm sure there's a lot coming up in the next 20 to 30 years for you. I hope we will see much more stuff. Yep, yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> Not over yet. <laughs> it isn't. Yeah. If you are going to die, die immediately, because this makes this a very valuable podcast. Yeah, but if okay. you're not, I'd prefer... <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the amazing Sir Michael Palin! Thank you very much. We'll be back. You have been listening to Rahala Stapa with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Sir Michael Palin. What? How did we get him? Thank you to Pest for playing this music. I uh, would also very much like to thank everyone at the Leicester Square Theatre. I hope they will get through this lockdown Okay, was very disappointed to have to cancel so many shows. Postpone, if you've got tickets for those shows, hopefully they will rearrange for some point in the future. Thank you to Chris Evans, not that one, and all the camera crew who, again, also missing out on getting paid and doing some work because of this terrible situation. Uh, I'm indebted to my producer, Ben Walker. I'm extremely indebted to my executive, executive producer, Steph Swanson. We called... Uh, uh, um, uh, Steph uh, ducks on. Is that not swans? Uh, this is a fuzz. Go stripe.com and Sky Potato production. Head to gofasterstripe.com slash badges. Become a monthly badger. See that extra Michael Palin video and lots, lots more. Honestly, it's worth £3 a month of anyone's money. A cup of coffee and you'll be helping us to make more podcasts in the future or subscribe on Twitch twitch.tv herring if you're a member of Amazon Prime you can do that for free and give us £5 every month thanks very much for listening and watching now go fuck yourselves Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks again for listening to the podcast, richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour or richardherring.com slash gigs for all of the information on the tour. Gofasterstripe.com for lots of downloads and books and lots of fun. Thanks for listening. Go and listen to another one. Tell your friends about the show. Tell your friends about the tour. I love you all. I'm out.